Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I am the host, John Moorhead, and uh, I hope you find this particular podcast episode helpful, and I would encourage you to go and visit uh, our library of podcasts that you can find at Spotify and Apple Podcasts and uh, wherever you do your podcast listening. This is also available in video form, and you can find that on our YouTube page. And this is just one of many resources we have available at multifaithmatters.org, so please take a look at the website. Uh, I am privileged today to have two guests. First of all, my frequent uh, uh, collaborator in crime, uh, Phil Wyman. Pastor Phil is coming to us uh, from the West Coast uh, that soon with another earthquake will fall and drift away into the Pacific Ocean. And, no, uh, no, no. The rest well, of the continent is going to fall oh, off okay. and drift all right. away. Know how that was California going. will be left. <laughs> <laughs> Phil is... Uh, been pastor of uh, the gathering in Salem, Massachusetts, and has been active in uh, festival gatherings and Burning Man. And and uh, if you have seen Phil's work in the past, he is a colorful guy. And he also has a Pentecostal background, which will be uh, an important element to bring into our conversation today. So welcome, Phil. Hey, that's, <laughs> this is going to be so fun. <laughs> and Phil and I are privileged today to have uh, as a conversation partner S. Jonathan O'Donnell, and he is the author of a new book uh, called Passing Orders. The subtitle is Demonology and Sovereignty in American Spiritual Warfare. And um, Jonathan is a postdoctoral fellow in American Studies at University College Dublin. So while Phil and I are coming from America in the morning, we've got Jonathan coming from Ireland. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Thank you. This, uh, the topic today is good. we're going to be looking at something fascinating in American politics and pop culture and religion as all of that comes together. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a troubling, but at the same time, fascinating uh, last four years uh, in American political history uh, as someone involved in the academic study of religion and looking at religion and pop culture. Um, scholars have for years been trying to unpack why it is that a large percentage of white evangelicals uh, not only supported Trump, but did so in, in such a strong fashion with such commitment. And one of the things that scholars have uh, teased out is the significance of Christian nationalism. But there's something else in the mix, and that uh, there is a charismatic and Pentecostal element involving demonology and spiritual warfare. And that's what Jonathan is oh here to help us understand, given his research. Jonathan, let's begin, a, yeah, let's begin at a personal note. How in the world did you get interested in the academic study of Pentecostal demonology and spiritual warfare? Uh, I mean, on one level, it's not quite as an exciting a story as it could be. <laughs> <laughs> so I originally um, started doing my doctoral research around apocalypticism during the Bush years of the War on Terror, essentially. And 
as I was doing a lot of research in that and a lot had been written on it academically, I realized that one of the aspects that academics were not writing about was the presence of demonology within that particular setting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so from there, I followed, followed the demons, basically, and <laughs> eventually um, realized that the place they were being substantially written about was in, in more Pentecostal and charismatic literature. Uh, that either wasn't getting academic attention, or if it was getting academic attention, it was other aspects of it that were being focused on. Uh, and so I decided to focus on that. And then that led me into my current position, which was looking at this more within the Trump years, um, second Obama mm -hmm. term, and like the kind of post-2012 um, religious landscape in America. Mm -hmm. So are you saying you basically followed the smell of the sulfur and that was kind of yeah, effectively. Yeah. yeah. Like where does it, where's, where's the sulfur leading like at the moment? Um, <laughs> I want, I want to know what uh, interesting youth you had that you had this apocalyptic demonic <laughs> interest going on. <laughs> my, my youth is actually incredibly boring. <laughs> um, I was raised in a, mostly irreligious but slightly conspiratorial family in the south oh. of england wow. um yeah so the, the the demon interest came way later and is not remotely connected to anything in my in my youth so right. <laughs> <laughs> spicing up spicing up life as you go along <laughs> yeah what was it about the apocalyptic angle that interested you initially um Oh, th this is a slightly more personal note. It's probably because, so I was being raised in a mostly irreligious family. My exposure to Christianity was essentially primarily cultural. Um, I did technically go to a Church of England junior school in the UK where we sang hymns during assembly. Um, but even then, religion was a fairly um, minor part of my education. Uh, and then when I was about 15, I picked up the Bible and read the book of Revelation. <laughs> um, specifically, I, hadn't, I didn't read any of the, anything else at the time in the Bible. I ju just decided to skip to the end and read the book of Revelation. <laughs> and and that, that probably had a, a significant impact on like, my developing academic trajectory <laughs> from that point onwards. Wow. You were captured right there. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of what kind of critical lens do you bring to the subject matters you look at it what framework are you what for your analysis there um i i use a number of critical lenses uh, to approach evangelical um charismatic demonology um i use a combination of continental philosophy and critical race theory uh, decolonial criticism, um, decon yeah, a, a, a lot of a lot of pretty hardcore European and American critical theoretical frameworks um, that basically help me unpack the way that the demonologies that I'm analyzing interact with broader political formations and social formations within the United States. Um, it helps me look at the way that they impact ideas about race, ideas about colonialism, specifically in the U.S. settler colonialism, um, but also uh, processes of empire more broadly. 
um, how they intersect with ideas of gender and sexuality uh, and of sort of multi-faith religions and like the way that they interact with with kind of the the general pluralist multicultural dimensions of contemporary American life. Mm. Um, so essentially what those critical lenses help me look at is the way that the way that demonology acts not so much simply as a belief system, um, but how it interacts with society and with politics in the US and with other kind of central topic, critical topics of contemporary life. Mm. You know, uh, sometimes, I don't think evangelicals, uh, probably Pentecostals either, are very good at uh, self-critical reflection. So we're trying to create space for that. And when it comes to some of these uh, critical lenses, uh, they may bristle at it. Phil, this is mm. something for feedback for you. Why would you as a, a Pentecostal be open to these kinds of uh, critical lenses that help us kind of shine a different perspective and light on a topic like this? I mean, I think... Uh, yeah. Well, both, both of it, yeah. Phil, do you want to jump in? Yeah, so I, I, I don't know how good an uh, example of an insider I am because I wasn't brought up within Pentecostal charismatic circles, um, came to it as an adult and then began pastoring in those circles and always had an outsider's perspective. Um, I've also had been of the opinion that any, any given group um, needs to uh, be self-critical that's the only way we become self-healing organizations, right? Is by being self-critical. Um, we have a lot to learn from the Jewish community who, you know, the best Jewish jokes are from Jewish people, right? <laughs> well, well, why aren't, aren't the best Pentecostal jokes from Pentecostals? Um, they're not. And, and so I've always had this kind of black sheep approach to um, viewing my own faith. And so people will often think that, um, I must not be one of you anymore because I <laughs> critique you, right? <laughs> it's, um, uh, but, but there is, I, I believe, and, and part of this is an American thing where a corporation is actually a person, right? And so we have to defend that corporation against the individuals that appear to attack it, whether, you know, terminology within the United States, it's uh, our foes, foreign and domestic, right? Our enemies, mm -hmm. both foreign and domestic, that we defend our nation against. And sometimes when we perceive the other as being this enemy, um, uh, we then are, attack those who we ought to be serving and loving, right? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's to a great degree part of the problem. What are your thoughts, yeah, Jonathan? What, why should, what would your case be? Why should uh, a Pentecostal and evangelical be open to these critical lenses? I mean, like, coming at this from a kind of sociological anthropological lens as an academic that I do I mean my straightforward simple answer would be that Pentecostals exist within society and need to be able to position themselves relative to that society in a way that is not simply antagonistic um, as Phil was saying like being critical is not simply an attack it, it is a an essential method for healing 
And I think in, in, a contemporary, in a contemporary American context that is deeply riven by issues around like race, to use the obvious, to use perhaps the most evident one, um, being able to be critical of your own community and your own community's position within that context is I think the only way to create healing and to sort of, yeah, um, help, yeah. So promote healing and promote the kind of furthering of your community like within that context. I think especially in, in a contemporary America that is like uh, multi-faith and multicultural, um, there needs to be a way for Pentecostals and Charismatics to engage with communities of other cultures and other faiths in a way that is not antagonistic. And that is going to both require critical awareness like of those communities, but also critical awareness of themselves as a community and of the ways that they may perhaps fall short of their stated desires or goals. Yeah, I think in the early post-Trump days here, uh, evangelicals and Pentecostals are going to be particularly tender and uh, defensive, but the hope is that uh, as time goes by, if for no other reason uh, to uh, rebuild uh, the reputation and credibility in American culture, uh, my hope is that they will be open to more self-critical reflection and hopefully conversations and perspectives like this can can ha be helpful in the analysis. I certainly find it helpful and valuable. I know Phil does and some of our colleagues. Um, let's talk about the kinds of constructs that Pentecostals bring to their understanding of demonology and how this plays out in politics and how it did during the Trump era. The assumption would be uh, that this is just a, a theological and biblical thing, uh, but it's a little more complex than that. So what kind of constructs are involved? So I mean, one of the kind of key things they talk about in the book, and I think one of the key things to think about regarding religion broadly is religion is not ever just belief. Uh, religion exists in the world. It shapes communities. It shapes those communities' relationship to other communities and to kind of society more broadly. Um, in the case of demonology, demonology has a very long history um, in Christianity, like its existence within what is what we generally refer to now as the kind of Pentecostal and charismatic community, like arguably goes back to the early years of the 20th century, as such as 1906 as the street revival. Um, but spiritual warfare and demonology broadly goes back to before even Christianity existed. It goes back to the era of Second Temple Judaism. Um, and it has always been deeply embedded within society. Um, the, early, the early Jewish demonologies were ways of processing the relationship of the Jewish community to empire, for example, to their, their place like as a subjugated population within an imperial context um, of like changing social hierarchies and social structures, the marginalization of specific like say elite scribal groups in in second temple judaism and i think that long history of the way that the way that conceptions of the demonic um 
have always interacted and in some sense been not dependent, but like co-evil with or co-constitutive uh, with broader societal contexts um, is important to bring to bear in the contemporary environment in which um, like demonology is not simply an abstract or a purely theological concept. It is being brought to bear in the analysis of um, governmental structures, for example, in um, reactions to popular uprisings and protests that are seen um, in some sense to threaten particular political positions, whether you know, accurately or inaccurately in this context. Um, the, some of the most evident ones during the Trump presidency were on the one hand, the conception of um, certain mechanisms of the US government as demonically influenced, uh, specifically in their opposition to Trump. Um, others were manifested in reactions to popular uprisings, such as um, the Black Lives Matter protests, like in 2020, but also creeps going back to their origins in the kind of in 2012 and onwards. Um, it also has had a huge influence on um, specific attitudes to immigration. It's often been gal it's often been um, implemented to frame, for example, like Muslim immigrants or even domestic American Muslim populations. Um, also, uh, general migrant groups such as from Latin America and elsewhere that this mm. demonology has been kind of mobilized to intersect with. That makes sense. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Who've been uh, moving from kind of more the abstract to the more concrete in terms of examples. Uh, some of our listeners and viewers might be familiar with like a Robert Jeffers or mm. a Franklin Graham and their proximity to Trump. But who have been some of the key Pentecostal players and how have they brought in this spiritual warfare and demonology aspect in regards to Trump? I mean, it's a fairly eclectic, I mean, the, perhaps, perhaps the most obvious would be someone like Paula White, who mm -hmm. was um, Trump's personal spiritual advisor, um, but also Jeffress, others, other figures who were kind of often referred to as the court evangelicals in press. Um, mm. I think it's worth pointing out that as much that Trump has been relatively close to specific subsets of the of the conservative Pentecostal and charismatic um, milieu, I guess you can call it. Um, but at the same time, it's also important to real, realize that the we Pentecostal and charismatic movements and spiritual warfare specifically over the last 30 years has moved broadly into a kind of non or post-denominational framework specifically um, in which you get, while you do get groups affiliated with certain churches and certain individuals, you're more likely to operate within these broader, more loosely affiliated networks of individuals where ideas and experiences will be kind of shared across the internet or through missionary work through um, grassroots activism in a way that is like connected to I guess the court evangelicals as they're termed but it also exists in a much more broader context right right like the you know the new apostolic reformation 
Hmm. It's got its whole circle of people with their capital P profits. Um, yeah. yeah, and figures, yeah. figures from that, such as like Cindy Jacobs, for example, was very, right. Lance very Wall supportive now. of Trump. Lance Wall now. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Jer- these are all, these are all figures who are... Yeah. Yeah, these are all figures who were very overtly supportive of Trump and overtly positioning him as a kind of agent of of divine will and divine power, like on on Earth, but specifically on America. I think. Right, right. Now, now in your in your book, you 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 frame three particular um, demonic entities slash frameworks. You got your your Jezebel, your um, uh, Leviathan, and then uh, was it the the Antichrist, right? Yeah. And um, when when you when you were listening through mm. this uh, five plus years of prophetic information, you know, of course, mm. I, you know, we, we know that if we we look back to the history of it, it kind of tags back to you know somebody who's no longer with us. Um, the uh, the South African prophet um, with oh. the initial well, Reinhard Bonnke will be a trumpet. What's that? Reinhard Bonnke is that who you're? No, 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 no. Um, oh, I can't. I, remember. I, I, I know who you mean, but I can't remember the name. Yeah, I, yeah, uh, and um, it'll it'll come to me somewhere here. I was just watching some of his stuff last night. Uh, you know, looking back on it, but but we have these prophets. You know, your mm. your Lance Wall now is your. Um, Jeremiah Johnson's, and they're um, utilizing a framework of spiritual warfare in their prophecies, things they're seeing mm. in their dreams. What what jumped out at you particularly in reference to, you know, whether that Jezebel, that Antichrist, mm. Leviathan that you saw repeatedly used as like opposition terminology against Trump and mm. and you know redeeming america <laughs> yeah um i mean there's a, i guess kind of a number of factors that so in specifically regarding kind of specific demonic figures like leviathan specifically has gained a lot of traction within the trump era um okay probably because leviathan is very very due to the history of the figure and the history of the term has become very associated with ideas of the state ideas of kind of illegitimate state power and state rule, which I think made that figure very conducive to conceptualizing um, figures like the deep state, for example, or like the broader idea of Trump as against a kind of existent, like bureaucratic um, structures within America. Mm. Um, This is the way that Lance Warnell used it, for example. and use the figure like more broadly to conceptualize um, ideas of institutions and ideas of Trump like as against specific institutions. Um, One of the things that I do talk about in the book that was something that was different from the way that previous scholars had talked about the way that demons exist within evangelical culture um, was the way that specific demonic figures were used specifically to in reference to specific particular groups or particular ideas of power or particular idea of or group formations um jezebel for example while certainly ubiquitous within the works of of some figures um 
was often used more specifically to talk about ideas about gender, ideas about sexuality, um, right. sometimes ideas of globalization as well. Um, right. Whereas Leviathan was very specifically like often tied to institutions, um, to institutional structures. Um, the Antichrist was broader, uh, which is why the book focuses specifically on the Antichrist in the context of demonologies of Islam. Um, right. I could have also conceptualized that chapter as being about Baal as a figure uh, because of the, the intersections there, but yeah, so. Hmm. Yeah, I was, um, I was, I was captured with the, uh, some of your thoughts about um, the Jezebel figure. Um, you know, my, <laughs> I have quite a bit of experience with, <laughs> um, I, some of the people you mentioned, like John Paul Jackson specifically, I knew, hmm. I knew well, Oh wow! and, and, you know, he wrote his book about Jezebel. Um, it, it's an interesting framing because here you have this queen of Israel who then becomes a model when she gets to the book of revelation hmm you know, that you, <laughs> you first read, um, yeah. uh, the name appears again, and it has both a sexual, but also a power context. And, mm. and I, I, I find regularly that if you do disagree with somebody in Pentecostal circles, all of a sudden you have a Jezebel spirit, mm. <laughs> right? And they yeah. want to cast it out of you. <laughs> um, ha how does that broad spectrum of spec sexuality to power struggles hmm. um, connect through that figure? Yeah, yeah, how does that connect within this quote Jezebel spirit yeah, well, and, like, so and our preoccupation the, the, with it? Yeah. I mean, the template the template for Jez the spirit of Jezebel comes from from the biblical character, like the queen, um, and Jezebel within the Bible is kind of framed through. I guess like three conceptions of otherness. Um, she is a woman, she is a foreigner, and she is a pagan, essentially. Uh, which is specifically she's Canaanite or Phoenician in this context. Um, and so like she marries King Ahab and the story goes that she kind of leads Ahab into idolatry, um, specifically to the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth, I believe, like the Canaanite Phoenician deities. Um, but what you generally get is this joint conception of this um, sort of foreign pagan woman who comes to Israel from outside and kind of corrupts the, the proper order of kingship, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, that is then like later restored through her kind of over her, her famous overthrow um, and her, her defenestration to use the, the technical term for being thrown out of right, a window. Right. Um, mm. But like this kind of particular kind of threefold conception of that ties kind of gender to idolatry to um, foreign influence um, is the pattern that gets taken up um, in both kind of more concrete and more abstract ways in contemporary Pentecostal and charismatic demonology. Um, on a kind of, I guess, more structural level, you have the association that she often has with ideas of witchcraft and ideas of um, quote unquote foreign religions or like non-Christian religions, like introducing both kind of 
both witchcraft or like non-Christian religious practices, but also often like new forms of sexuality, which ties into mm. a very common demonology that associates immigrants with as bringers of kind of deviant sexual forms, which is a very common trope, um, not just in America, but in Europe as well. Um, but I think to the, the specific connotation of having a Jezebel spirit, like as related to disagreements, I think also comes from, in a more abstract way, from that conception of, of Jezebel as foreign, uh, the idea that mm. you are becoming positioned as an outsider. Like to be accused of being a, having a Jezebel spirit like implies that you are not in your proper place within the existing structure. Um, you are in some sense an outsider, either literally or figuratively. Um, you are leading the flock astray through, through your bringing of these kind of deviant, deviant beliefs, which also ties into the con con connotations of idolatry. Um, right. And of course, within this context, it's important to clarify, like, who is being accused of having a Jezebel spirit? What is their position relative to the power hierarchy of a particular um, church or tradition? Um, is it the people who are in charge accusing someone of having a Jezebel spirit and why? Because um, that was one of the other things that I noticed in a lot of my reading. Because uh, I, I, one of the main resources I used for this were spiritual warfare manuals. Um, the text written by uh, Pentecostal and charismatic and evangelical pastors and writers that talk about their encounters with the demonic and like the way their experience and one of the things I noticed consistently with especially regarding Jezebel is they would relay stories about how a specific often a woman not exclusively a woman but frequently a woman within their congregation um, would speak out with like a prophecy that they claimed was say not part of the holy spirit or was not you know dividing the congregation but they would never tell you what these what this person actually said most of the time like there was no way of actually judging like the actual content of the message that was apparently so divisive or so like um threatening or, or unholy within this context right um you just had to take it on the on on faith essentially that this was a benevolent um decision on their part right i've seen the live action events <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so and, and and it is um it is interesting because um it's more it's more of a felt thing mm. than it is at, you know an actual thing you question something and somebody feels the pressure mm, <laughs> of the question yeah. right and um and and now discerns a jezebel spirit <laughs> yeah um and, and yeah and that of course ties into the broader way that like often the politics of discomfort or of kind of affective dissonance right. kind of often plays into these things like um like i one of the other things i noticed repeatedly was that the the claim of being discomforted in your position as a form of witchcraft against you was a very common trope that I found mm. in a few texts. Right. Um, so, so is this being played against us at a national level in, in politics? 
you know, and when I say us, you know, speaking of like Pentecostal, evangelical, you know, the broader mm. um, framework of, uh, you know, yeah. this in family what, what? faith. Was it in, in national politics? Was that um, discomfort of, you know, becoming demonic? Was that somehow, were we played <laughs> by somebody I mean, using like that against us? I mean, I, 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 will, I will have, to, I mean, whether you were played or not is, is something that I don't think I can answer. Um, <laughs> Wait. I will say that, like, like, discomfort is not, and this kind of ties back to my discussion about critical methodologies earlier, like, discomfort is not always an attack, like, let alone, like, a demonic attack. Um, right. Like, like there is like I think I think when you're being challenged and especially when you're being challenged on something that is perhaps deeply felt, regardless of whether that belief or, or that feeling is correct, like there is a discomfort. Like you you feel discomfort when you are challenged. And like right. having a critical methodology can help you reflect on that, can help you be like, oh, okay, where where is this discomfort coming from? Like, mm. what, what is the cause of this discomfort? Um, and I think a lot, of, a lot of us feel, we like to feel safe. I mean, yeah, some people don't like to feel safe. They, you know, like to adrenaline chase and be out yeah. of that comfort zone. But I think yeah, a lot I, of people I, fundamentally like to feel guilty. safe and secure. <laughs> and like, I think that that psychological and emotional impulse can negatively impact um, on the broader stage of politics when a particular message, um, it makes you feel comfortable and makes you feel vindicated mm. whether or not it's true or whether or not it's accurate or not. Um, I think we're seeing the fallout of some of that at the moment. Um, right, in certain, right. In certain, like, environments. Yeah. From, Go ahead, John. How has this concept, this construct of demons and spiritual warfare being connected to contemporary politics, specifically over the last few years, and how similar or dissimilar is this from uh, previous conceptions mm. of demonology within Christian history? Mm. Yeah. yeah, so I guess, I'll, I guess the first part of that question. Um, hmm. So I'd say, that, I'd say that over the last few years, like probably that, I mean, there are, there are numerous um, sides to this but i'd say the big ones are the conception of the state and the conception of the other or the outsider um so on the one hand you have constructions of the u.s government um specifically the parts of the u.s government that were seen as antagonistic to trump um that have had become coded as demonically influenced um and talking specifically about the kind of arena of pro-trump charismatic and evangelical literature here like within like other forms of charismatic and evangelical literature like the the framing will be distinct like different different figures will be deployed and different things will be accused of demon of demonological but in terms of the kind of the main orientation of u.s politics and of u.s religion and politics and american political religion um you have the demonization of the institutions of the u.s state in opposition to a figure to Trump positioned as 
a kind of divinely chosen wrecking ball, as Lance Warnell kind of framed him. On the other hand, you have the application of the demonic to um, figures of the other, um, specifically often like the immigrant other, um, the Muslim other, the, especially the Muslim immigrant other. Um, but like you'll see like uh, the uh, application, for example, to the southern border that is found either implicitly or explicitly within some uh, charismatic and evangelical writings. Um, Robert Jeffress being a kind of classic example there of um, equating the the walls of paradise in the end at the at the end of time, the kind of post-apocalyptic world, um, to the wall that Trump wanted to build along the southern border. Uh, this conception of America as this sort of paradisiacal, like return to Eden that was being assailed from outside by by demonic forces that were either explicitly or implicitly aligned with uh, groups like the Honduran migrant caravan in 2018, um, immigrants more broadly, you often had the specter of the, the kind of image of the, the threatening Muslim outsider, um, often aligned with terrorism in this context. Like if we think back to the Honduran, the, the Latin American migrant caravan in 2018, you had a lot of discussion about how there were secretly Muslim fighters concealed in the in the migrant caravan, which was not true, um, but was a very prominent aspect of that idea. Uh, also the idea that they were being funded by George Soros, which was very prominent, um, which ties into the broader way that uh, these demonologies can intersect with wider kind of anti-Semitic um, conspiracies, uh, which has a long history within Christianity. Um, and that kind of, I guess, ties me into the, the, the older, the question of kind of genealogy or history here. Because like I said earlier, um, demonology has always interacted with its specific social contexts, um, regardless of whether those, what those contexts were. And you see this in, I guess I'll just like, in, like I said, in, in sort of second temple Judaism in the kind of pre-Christian era, you have this conception of the demonic that's often tied to power structures, to ideas of, of empire, to the, the groups that were subjugating the Jewish, um, the Israelites, I guess Hebrews, I'm not sure what the term would be for that particular period of history. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, the Jewish group, of, the Jewish people at that particular point in time. Uh, within early Christianity, um, you have similar conceptions. You have uh, early, you have ideas of Rome, for example, as demonically controlled, as kind of as the suppressor state that was under the rule of, of evil. Um, that then shifts over time as Christianity becomes more and more mainstream within the Roman Empire. You have shifting conceptions of what is demonically aligned in that period. Um, but particularly in that period, you have histories of what's of Christian urbanization. So you have Christianity moving essentially from the periphery to the center of the Roman Empire, um, gaining more converts within urban spaces. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the early Christian paradigms of spiritual warfare in this context, in the sense that it was processed as this spiritual battle over the city spaces of late antiquity between 
um, God and the gods between like uh, the pag various pagan deities that are conceptualized as, mm. as this context. Um, after that, you get a kind of lull in demonology for quite a long time. And this is one of the most interesting periods of, of Christian history because um, there was a period of not quite a thousand years, but the kind of period between the kind of Christianization of the Roman Empire and the early starts of the kind of heresies in the 12th century, um, where demonology wasn't really a major aspect of political culture, I guess you might call it, within, within Europe at the time. Um, it was deployed um, during efforts of Christianization, particularly with the, the North against the kind of um, the kind of Norse and the Germanic, the Nordic and the Germanic groups. Um, but often if you look at like um, popular culture within that period, like demons are often framed as slightly farcical figures within this period. You saw them in like popular plays, for example, um, as like a, not quite joke figures, but not as threatening figures. Um, and this stemmed from the idea that demons had been defeated by Christ on the cross. Like they were defeated forces, they had no power, they couldn't really impact the world. Yeah, interacting with them was probably not a sensible decision, but like ultimately you were only really going to damn yourself. It wasn't going to have broader social, con broader social consequences. Um, this started to change in the 12th and especially the 13th and the 14th centuries, um, probably partially in reaction to the Black Death and the widespread social changes that happened in Europe at the time, uh, which led to kind of widespread civil unrest and, and the kind of gradual collapse of the feudal system. Um, this is the period where you start to see like the return of demonology as a really concerted um, aspect of Christian theology, aspect of European uh, Christian political culture, um, and particularly the idea of the demon as threat, like not just to the individual, but to the social order. Um, and that led to, I guess, a number of consequences, but I guess like the most obvious would be something like the witch hunts, um, led to the widespread persecution of uh, Jewish groups, for example, and uh, people who were accused of witchcraft. Um, these groups were seen as kind of undermining Christian, sort of the Christian fabric of Europe right. at the time. Protestant heretics. Yeah. Uh, well, that was <laughs> yeah. the, the other interesting thing, because, of course, the mm. Reformation, which like further fractured European Christendom at the time, um, you see this within both the Catholic and the Protestant groups. They were often not just accusing each other of being demonically influenced, uh, but they were also accusing like themselves within their own groups of being demonically influenced because there right. was this fear of the demonic as infiltrator, as like the the kind of force that was subversively working within within Christendom to kind of undermine it. Right. Um, and I think that specific, and then then as the witch hunts and that period kind of dies out, you have 
other shifts, you have this move within a lot of mainline or mainstream Christian denominations, like away from demonology as a kind of concerted aspect of, of theological analysis. It sticks around, but it becomes far, far less emphasized as time goes on. Um, but I think it's, I think that, that kind of early modern conception uh, around the Reformation and the pre-Reformation period of the demonic as this kind of subversive infiltrator is incredibly important for analyzing mm. the way that demonology is operating today, because there is this conception, uh, particularly within America, of like demonic forces as infiltrating and undermining the Christian fabric of the United States, essentially. Uh, whether that is in the form of the uh, the immigrant or the foreigner who is seen as carrying like new religious forms, new sexual practices, new cultural modes into into the United States, uh, or whether this in the context of um, ideas around, say, the deep state, for example, of the idea of of the government as a as a kind of demonically influenced threat uh, that is that is also working to the, to undermine. Um, the sort of Christian nature of the of the nation within that context. Mm. We, we should probably note here that we're going to have to hold an exorcism because uh, John has his familiar spirit. Um. <laughs> yeah, if you're watching the video version of this, uh, my one of my cats, a black cat, heard the conversation on demonology, and he just had to be a part of the podcast. So he's on the back of my chair, supervising here, somewhere. sitting right behind your head, looking like yeah, a he, he, demon. His, his, the, the cat is definitely like bringing a vibe to that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was it was an epic entrance. <laughs> We're talking about demonology and the black cat <laughs> jumps on behind your head and stares at us. That's awesome. <laughs> no, Jonathan, you mentioned uh, demonology and demons being used in one way as a, an othering tool. Um, I think along with that is the othering also includes dehumanization. Uh, Phil and I were a part of a, a grant process from the Louisville Institute where we uh, research the the emotional, the affective dimension that evangelical Christians bring to these negative attitudes towards people in other religious traditions, and in particular in this cultural moment, it has been uh, Muslims. In our part of our research, one of the things we discovered was this dehumanization process. So, uh, Muhammad would be characterized as a demonically possessed pedophile, and it occurred to us that. Many times evangelicals use theology as a, as a tool of dehumanization. Can you speak mm. to how this uh, demonological process involves oftentimes a dehumanization element to it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of one of the key things that I talk about in the book is what I see as the kind of relationship between what I characterize as kind of demonology and demonization. Um, demonology being the set of theological um, and philosophical beliefs about the nature of the demonic realm, about whether demons exist, how they act, what they are, um, and demonization as the, as the um, I guess, material, political, social practices of dehumanization, uh, the way that certain groups are constructed as other, um, often violently so. And the interaction between these, these, this circuit, um, 
because I think it's important for me to realize to recognize that it's not simply a matter of demonological beliefs influencing um, say material practices of dehumanization uh, those material contexts of dehumanization also feed back into the way that demons become thought as kind of metaphysical spiritual entities um, but the key aspect here regarding say dehumanization specifically is the demon is one of the, I guess, oldest and most archetypal figures of the other within um, Christian culture, certainly. Um, the demon is specifically an entity that is in rebellion against divine will, which I think is important. Um, I think that's actually something very important that goes beyond the way that demons are usually just thought of as evil spirits. I think understanding demons specifically as coded through rebellion is important because of the way that dehumanized others are often dehumanized partly because of the perceived challenge that they bring to, um, I guess, normative ideas of society. Um, to what a particular in-group will understand as the way the world is, or rather the way the world should be, um, because <laughs> yeah. the world is very rarely as, as people want it to be. Um, and this means that um, the conception of the demonic, particularly the conception of the demonic as rebellious, as, as willful, um, but also as threatening to the individual and to society gets projected or projected onto outgroups that have become like conceptualized equally as threatening. Uh, in the case of Islam specifically, um, this ties heavily into, I guess, the history of US foreign policy in a lot of ways. Um, <laughs> you, and I think that's, that's important for anyone who, for I, I guess members of your audience, but also the populace more broadly that are searching the Bible for references to, that they can construe as being about Islam. Um, like Muslims weren't really a feature of demonology during the Cold War, for example. Um, that was mostly about communists. Um, the shift starts to happen during the nineties primarily, but really kicks off only after 9-11. Um, when the U.S. is prosecuting the war on terror, which becomes coded, you know, as essentially a war on Muslims. Like, that's not actually technically what they said it was about, but that is ultimately how it's frequently manifested, both um, politically and culturally and socially. And it's only after that point, really, that belief in Islam as not just as demonic, but as a kind of singularly demonic threat, um, really only starts to pick up um, within charismatic and evangelical literature. And I think that's really important because of the way that you see this feedback loop between material dehumanization and demonology as a belief system or a practice, and the way that these form this self-perpetuating cycle, because the political practices of, of dehumanization, of the dehumanization of the other, then become the evidence and the justification that is deployed 
for reconceptualizing the demonic, which is then reapplied as a justifying lens onto these outgroups, like onto these groups that have become othered in a way that becomes effectively self-perpetuating until something happens in the political moment, the political system. In the case of um, communism, it was the end of the Cold War, uh, the collapse of the threat of, of the Soviet Union, which, I mean, communists are still framed as threats, existential and demonic threats within this literature, um, but with far less prominence than they were when the Soviet Union was still around. Um, but essentially these become self-perpetuating and forced feedback loops um, that, just, that justify often retroactively or kind of a posteriori um, practices of dehumanization. So um, I'm, I'm wondering if you're, I wonder this, I mean, this is something I'm wondering, I'm wondering if something you see, if the demonization, um, the whole demonology framework mm. has been moved from solely a religious framework to becoming uh, a secular framework and uh, as well, mm. and not, not just in religious people looking at these issues through demonology, mm. but like the rise of Q. Mm. Um, I mean, and, I, I would, I would and, and is there maybe a movement that's going to happen right now away from like Islam being demonized to white supremacy being demonized from like a secular perspective? You know what I'm saying? Uh, I mean, and, and when I, I say demonized, saying, I, I just really mean using that, that framework. I don't really think that's the case because like, right. I mean, like, I mean, I see, I see the process of demonology is primarily about power a lot of the time right. in my work. And white supremacy is, I mean, from my perspective, the power in the US. Right, um, I agree. In which case, like, like, I mean, while you could argue that it's been maybe demonized, like, I, I, think the, I think the power relation is very distinct there. Um, <laughs> and maybe it should be. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, right. like, however, like, with regards to your point about the sort of intersection of demonization with the secular more broadly, I mean, this is part of, I guess, my academic training, but like, it's important to recognize that Western secularity grows in significant part out of Protestant Christianity and mm. uh, the history of Protestant Christianity. Right. And I think as a result of that, it inherits it basically inherits the structures of Christian demonology, um, more or less secularized in places, more theological in others. Um, I think if you look, for example, at the history of anti-Semitism and like anti-Semitism's deployment within, not just, not by, not simply by religious figures, but more broadly within kind of Western society, mm. um, it is very easy to trace the influence and the history of that form of Christian demonology that was developed in early modernity uh, within the structures of anti-Semitism. Yeah, like altered somewhat, like becoming more framed through the question of race rather than the question of religion uh, frequently, but right. you still have the, the ideas of, of rebellion, you have the ideas of infiltration, you have the ideas of 
a sort of willful deviance of um, the idea of the threat to the kind of downfall of, of normative society. Um, you have a lot of these tropes um, and you have ideas of what I refer to in the book as kind of ontological negation or ontological absence. The idea that um, one of the features of Christian demonology historically is the idea that demons don't have legitimate substance. Um, they are, and that's partly due to the history of Christianity's development in relationship to late antiquity. Uh, the idea that God is both um, the height of goodness and the height of being, and therefore right. entities that are in rebellion against God not, do not simply forfeit goodness, but forfeit like being. Like there, there's right. something, they, they are a kind of absence in the world. Um, right, right. But this is actually a very directly correlated within anti-Semitic conspiracies, where um, specifically, if you look at them, like Jewish people are demonized specifically for like not having racial consciousness, for example, within uh, right. within white supremacist ontologies, they're seen as as essentially absent of being in the same way that demons are within Christian theology, in a way that like has a very direct historical lineage there that it's drawing on. Mm. I, I, I can't help but wonder if the whole demonology framework that Pentecostals have been mm. playing pretty hard for the last five years, right? Mm. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say it, it was is, just five years, but like... What's, what's that? I wouldn't say it was just five years. Um, well... I, I mean, in terms of politically and connected with Trump. I politically, and, yes. Um, but yeah, I, think it's yeah. important to, I think it's important to stress that these ideas have been around for decades at this point. They've, they've um, risen out of another place, but now right. it's but now like, it's They, they gained cultural prominence right. in the last five years, but like, yeah. they, they did not come from nowhere. They didn't, I, I know oh, a lot of media absolutely. discourse around the evangelical and the charismatic uh, Pentecostal politics of the Trump era like to frame a lot of these things as... Yeah, yeah. Ex as it were. Um, right. But I think it's important to stress that these, these are outgrowths of much older trends going back to things like the New Apostolic Reformation. And sure, sure. Actually, ancient tropes, yeah. That, you know, as you highlighted earlier, goes way, way back. Mm. Um, but I, I can't help but wonder if it's going to come home to roost that the average evangelical, not as caught up within the demonology terminology you know all that mm. all that worldview is is going to end up being <laughs> it's going to come home to roost and you know be pointed back at them in some mm. strange way i mean i guess maybe um can you reiterate the question <laughs> well so um if if a if a group of people demonizes another group of people, yeah. there's often a kickback that occurs, right? Mm. Now the others are demonizing back and some they're othering in some way, right? That, that, that quickly occurs. And, and there are going to be a number of evangelicals who haven't been caught up in mm. all of this demonological terminology. Are, are they going to be now is it going to come home to roost and we're, are we going to find evangelicals generally othered in a greater way? 
I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, no, because I think, I mean, okay, so I guess this is probably going to go off kind of controversially with your audience. I mean, I'm probably guessing a lot of this will, but like, (laughs) evangelicals are not, evangelicals derive a lot of their um, way of being in the world with the conception of not like of persecution, but of a certain a certain being of otherness in the world. Uh, the idea right. of being of being alien, of being a stranger, like within within circular right. society. Um, but the reality is that American society is deeply structured around specifically evangelical forms of Christianity, um, right. going back to the early freedom of religion clauses, which were primarily developed to stop a singular denomination of evangelical Protestantism, like gaining state ascendancy. Um, right. Like we see, we saw recently, even in the, I mean, we've just now gone through uh, Biden's inauguration process. Like the theology, I mean, although Biden is Catholic, like the theological language and the theological tropes that he deployed within his inauguration, deeply steeped within an American civil religion that is, paradigmatically Christian. And I think, like, essentially, I don't think evangelicals are going to be othered because I think evangelicals have always been the self within American context. Um, Even though society may be shifting, even though it is trans, even though it is becoming more multicultural, more multi-faith, there is still a dominance of, of Christianity within the cultural context and within the right. religious fabric of the nation and yeah that's i guess that's that's my stance on that matter <laughs> I, I, we're near the end of awesome. our time here and maybe i can ask uh one final question here we could go on for hours with this i know phil's got a bazillion questions that we just can't fit into the podcast oh, or jonathan's <laughs> something to drink um i just want to hang out with a pint you know at the pub with you. <laughs> uh, well maybe one day um, if I, if, if, you know, if the plague year ever ends and I'm in your neck <laughs> I know. the well, when, when it ends, I'm planning on moving to Wales, so I'll be much closer. Oh, in which case, you know, just across the Irish Sea. That's right. There you go. Yeah, it, it seemed to me that the uh, court evangelicals, the term that's been used, were this curious mix of evangelicals like a Robert Jeffress on the mm. one hand and a Paula White on the Pentecostal yeah. end on the other. And those groups don't normally uh, hang out at the same playground. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what was it that brought that strange mix of court evangelicals together? And in a post-Trump era, what kinds of things do you see them moving apart? Do you see that coalition staying together? What are your thoughts? I guess like, so on one level, like, I see the coalition as very much staying together. Like I'm guessing it will fragment very slightly without, without Trump as a kind of unifying factor, although that will, we'll have to see what happens with Trump in that context. Mm. Um, but in general, like there is an element to which we've, we've seen that confluence happen over the, over the course of the Trump presidency and over the buildup to the Trump presidency. Um, and like, you see this in, in like not really conversion narratives but in narratives that several evangelicals and pentecostals have told about um the way they were brought onto the the trump cause like from an initial point of of skepticism essentially 
Um, Paula White was very pro-Trump from very early on, but that's likely because they had a pre-existing relationship, essentially. Um, but it's interesting that you bring up Robert Jeffress, for example, because while Robert Jeffress is very much an evangelical rather than a Pentecostal, like he still traffics within the language of spiritual warfare a lot of the time. Mm. Like he draws heavily on what were previously understood as Pentecostal or charismatic tropes or beliefs or like forms of religious practice. And I think to an extent, like, while there is definitely separation that might be occurring at the institutional level, you know, the level of the, the denominational level, um, on the ground, there has often been much more fluidity between what we think of as evangelical and what we think of as Pentecostal or charismatic, going back um, probably before the New Apostolic Reformation, but especially, like, um, after it, like, through the 1990s, with the rise of um, what um, Brad Christensen and Richard Flory have called independent network charismatics, the idea of these kind of um, right. individual pastors and preachers who have their own distinct churches that are not necessarily formally affiliated with the denomination, or that they might right. be, but are existing primarily in these loose networks of affiliation with each other. Sure, sure. And I think... I think in a lot of way, what we saw in the Trump era was less uh, a joining of the ways, as it were, but more of a kind of revelation of the way that these evangelical and Pentecostal beliefs were existing on the ground already, uh, which were being brought into kind of a, a higher state of visibility. Um, and so while I think there would definitely be pushback among like, say the more kind of this mainline or the more like kind of formal evangelical denominations, the ones that are more perhaps more skeptical of charismatic and Pentecostal practices. Um, I don't think that will ultimately have that much impact in the way that this trajectory within American Christianity has been kind of going over the past three decades, essentially, at this point. Right. So, so we, we've got... Um... Cognitive dissonance. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, there is definitely a division, but I don't think the division is actually as... I think the division is a lot more porous than we give it credit for a lot of the time. Mm. Um, I mean, like, from my own experience, even with, within academic literature, like, I've encountered people... I've encountered scholars writing about figures without ever referencing their, like, charismatic or Pentecostal beliefs. And then when I read their their own works, their primary source works. It's steeped in the language of spiritual warfare, the language of prayer, the language of, um, of like the, the kind of Pentecostal charismatic forms of, of speaking in tongues, like, you know, and this was like, this was not something that I ever would have learned just reading the academic mm. literature on these figures. It was just something that was passed over in silence. And I think, I think on the ground, like the divisions between what is an evangelical and what is a, what is a Pentecostal and charismatic is, is a lot more nebulous than we give it credit for a lot of the time. Perhaps more than we'd like to think at times. Right, well. right. And, and charismatic being the operative word that made that all so. Yeah. Um, yeah. Char the char charismatic is important here because like the term charismatic is primarily comes about in the post-war era to characterize like the growth of what a, what were previously forms of Pentecostalism within 
um, more traditional denominations within America, whether that's the Episcopalian Church or the Catholic Church or the, the Baptists or whatever it happens to be. Um, and while there is definitely still some division between, um, I guess, the more formal Pentecostal associations like the Assemblies of God, for example, and like more evangelical denominations, like the, the charismatic and what is effectively what is referred to as the neo-charismatic, that more kind of independent post-denominational kind of milieu right. uh, is right. very much the point where this, this crossover is occurring. Sure, the IHOP and Bethel groups. Yeah. That, yeah. And by IHOP, he doesn't mean the restaurant folks, just so you know, so. Uh, yeah. The Pentecostals will <laughs> that, know. That, that confused me as, as a non-American, like, <laughs> like that confused me for ages. Right. <laughs> Come on, you gotta go get your, you know, meal at your International House of Prayer. Your pancakes are all in one plate. Yeah. That's right. That's, That's right. right. Well, unfortunately, we uh, need to draw this to a close. Uh, it is uh, near lunchtime here in America, and it's a late dinner time for uh, Jonathan in Ireland. Yep. So, uh, quarter, yeah, quarter to 7 p.m. here now. Sorry. <laughs> so I want to thank again my guests, uh, Phil Wyman, uh, frequent conversation partner here, and uh, our special special guest Jonathan O'Donnell and uh, his great new book Passing Orders uh, in the program notes for this podcast you'll find a description so and much. a link to that so please uh, pick up a copy if you want to explore this in more depth uh, hopefully you have found this podcast on uh, Pentecostal and charismatic demonology and spiritual warfare of interest please check out our other podcasts and other resources at multifaithmatters.org and if you find this podcast helpful, please rate us so that uh, we can show up higher in the rankings and 